Section 7 of The Golden Bough, Part 1, The Magic Art and the Evolution of Kings, Volume 2, by Sir James George Fraser. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information on a volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 12, The Sacred Marriage, Subchapter 2, The Marriage of the Gods. Marriages of the Gods in Babylonia and Assyria At Babylon, the imposing sanctuary of Bel, rose like a pyramid above the city in a series of eight towers or stories, planted one on top of the other. On the highest tower, reached by an ascent which wound about all the rest, there stood a spacious temple, and in the temple a great bed, magnificently draped and cushioned, with a golden table beside it. In the temple no image was to be seen, and no human being passed the night there, save a single woman who, according to the Chaldean priests, the god chose from among all the women of Babylon. They said that the deity himself came into the temple at night and slept in the great bed, and the woman as a consort of the god might have no intercourse with mortal man. As Bella Babylon was identical with Marduk, the chief god of the city, the woman who thus shared his bed was doubtless one of the wives of Marduk, mentioned in the Code of Hammurabi. A colour which was for some time the caliph of Assyria before it was displaced by Nineveh, the marriage of the god Nabu appears to have been annually celebrated at the third of the month, Iyar or Ariu, which corresponded to May. For on that day his bed was consecrated in the city, and the god entered his bedchamber to return to his place on the following day. The ceremonies attended the consecration of the couch, are minutely described in a liturgical text. After the appropriate offerings had been presented, the officiating priests purified the feet of the divine image with a sprig of reed and a vessel of oil, approached the bed thrice, kissed the feet of the image, then retired and sat down. After that she burned cedar wood dipped in wine, set before the image the heart of a sheep wrapped in a cloth, and offered libations. Aromatic woods were consecrated and burnt. More libations and offerings were made. Tables were spread for various divinities, and the ceremony ended with a prayer to the king. The god also went in procession to a grove, riding in a chariot beside his charioteer. Marriage of the god Ammon to the Queen of Egypt At Thebes in Egypt, a woman slept in the temple of Ammon as a consort of the god, and like the human wife of Bel at Babylon, she was said to have no commerce with a man. In Egyptian texts, she is often mentioned as the divine consort, and usually she was no less a personage than the Queen of Egypt herself. For according to the Egyptians, their monarchs were actually begotten by the god Ammon, who was soon, for the time being, the form of the reigning king, and in that disguise had intercourse with the queen. The divine procreation is carved and painted in great detail on the walls of two of the oldest temples in Egypt, those of Deir el-Bahai and Luxor, and the inscriptions attached to the paintings leave no doubt as to the meaning of the scenes. The pictures at Del el-Bahari, which represent the beginning and birth of Queen, had shot Fitztul, and the more ancient, had been reproduced with but little change at Luxor, where they represent the beginning and birth of King Amenophis III. The nativity is depicted in about fifteen scenes, which may be grouped in three acts. First, the carnal union of the god with the Queen. Second, the birth. The third, recognition of the infant by the gods the marriage of ammon with the queen is announced by a prologue in heaven ammon summons his ancestors the gods of heliopolis reveals to them the future birth of a new pharaoh a royal princess and requests them to make ready the fluid of life and of strength of which they are masters 
Then the god is seen approaching the queen's bedchamber, in front of him marches Thoth, with a roll of papyrus in his hand, who, to prevent mistakes, recites the official names of the queen, the spouse of the reigning king, Thothmes I at Deir el Bahari, Thothmes IV at Luxor, the fairest women. Then Thoth withdraws behind Ammon, lifting his arm behind the god in order to renew his vital fluid at this critical moment. Next, according to the inscription, the mystery of incarnation takes place. Ammon lays aside his godhead and becomes flesh in the likeness of the king, the human spouse of the queen. The consummation of the divine union follows immediately. On a bed of state, the god and the queen appear seated opposite each other, with their legs crossed. The queen receives from her husband the symbols of life and strength, while two goddesses, Neat and Silkit, the patroness of matrimony, support the feet of the couple and guard them from harm. The text which encloses the scene sets forth clearly the reality of this mystic union of the human with the divine. Thus Saint Amun-Ra, king of the gods, lord of Karnak, he who rules over Thebes, when he took the form of this male, the king of Upper and Nether Egypt, Thothmes I, or Thothmes IV, giver of life. He found the queen then, when she lay in the glory of her palace. She awoke the fragrance of the god and marvelled at it. Straight away his majesty went towards her, took possession of her, placed his heart in her, and showed himself to her in his divine form. And upon his coming she was uplifted at the sight of his beauty. The love of the god ran through all her limbs, and the smell of the god and his breath were full of the perfumes of Pelnit. And thus saith the royal spouse, the royal mother Amasi, or Matamoa, in presence of the majesty of this glorious god, Ammon, lord of Karnak, lord of Thebes, twice great are thy souls. It is noble to behold thy countenance when thou joinest himself to my majesty at all grace. Thy dew impregnates all my limbs. Then when the majesty of the god had accompanied all his desire with her, Ammon, the lord of the two lands, said to her, She who is joined to Ammon, the first of the nobles, verily, such shall be the name of the daughter who shall open thy womb, since such is the course of the words that come forth from thy mouth. She shall reign in righteousness in all the earth, for my soul is hers. Her heart is hers, my will is hers, my crown is hers. Truly, that she may rule over the two lands, that she may guide the souls of all living. Nativity of the Divine Egyptian Kings Represented on the Monuments After the begetting of the Divine Child, for we must remember that the kings and queens of Egypt were regarded as divinities in their lifetime, Another series of scenes represents the fashioning of its body and its birth. The god Konamal, who in the beginning of time moulded gods and men on his potter's wheel, is seen seated at his wheel, modelling the future king or queen and their doubles, those spiritual duplicates or external souls which were believed to hover invisible about both men and gods all through life. In front of Konamu kneels Hikwit, the frog-headed goddess, the great magician. She is holding out the newly created figures, the symbol of life, the crooks ansata, in order that they may breathe and live. Another scene represents the birth. Adair al-Bahari, the queen, has already been delivered, as presenting her daughter to several goddesses who have acted the part of midwives. At Luxor, the double of the royal infant is born first. The goddesses who serve as nurses have him in their arms, and the midwives are preparing to receive the real child. Behind the queen are the goddesses who watch over childbirth, led by Isis and Nephthys, and all around the spirits of the east, the west and the north, and the south are presenting the symbol of life or uttering acclamations. In a corner of the grotesque god Bess and the female hippopotamus Api, keep off all evil influence 
and every magnetic spirit. These representations probably copied from the life. We shall probably not err in assuming with some eminent authorities that the ceremonies of the nativity of the pharaohs thus emblazoned on the walls of Egyptian temples were copied from the life. In other words, that the carved and painted scenes represented a real drama, which was acted by masked men and women whenever a queen of Egypt was brought to bed. Here, as everywhere else in Egypt, said Professor Maspero, sculptor and painter did nothing but faithfully imitate reality. Theory required that the assimilation of the kings to the gods should be complete, so that every act of the royal life was, as it were, a tracing of the corresponding act of the divine life. From the moment that the king was Ammon, he wore the costume and badges of Ammon, the tall hat with the long plumes, the cross of life, the greyhound-headed scepter, and thus arrayed he presented himself in the queen's bedchamber to consummate the marriage. The assistants also assumed the costume and appearance of the divinities whom they incarnated. The men put on masks of jackals, hawks, and crocodiles, while the women donned masks of cows or frogs, according as they played the parts of Anubis, Konomo, Sovko, Hathor, or Hikrit. And I am disposed to believe that the doubles of the newborn child were represented by as many puppets as were required by the ceremonies. Some of the rites were complicated and must have tired excessively the mother and child who underwent them, but they are nothing to those who have been observed in similar circumstances in other lands. In general, we are bound to hold that all the pictures traced on the walls of the temples in which the person of the king is concerned correspond to a real action in which disguised personages played the part of gods. Human Wives of Ammon in the Decline of Egypt In the decline of Egypt from the 11th century onwards, the wives of Ammon and Thebes were called on to play a conspicuous part in the government of the country. The strong grip of the pharaohs was relaxed, and under their feeble successors the empire crumbled away into a number of petty independent states. In this dissolution of the central authority, the crafty high priests of Ammon at Thebes contrived to assert regal powers and to reign far and wide in the name of the deity. Failing their rescripts under the guise of oracles of the god, who with the help of a little jugglery complacently signified his assent to their wishes by nodding his head or even by speech. But curiously enough, under this pretended theocracy, the nominal ruler was not the priest himself, but his wife, the earthly consort of Ammon. Thus Thebes became for a time a ghostly principality governed ostensibly by a dynasty of female popes. Their office was hereditary, passing by rights from mother to daughter, but probably the entail was often booked by the policy or ambition of the men who stood behind the scenes and worked the religious puppet show by hidden wires to the awe and astonishment of the gaping vulgar. Certainly we know that on one occasion King Semeticus first foisted his own daughter into the Holy See by dedicating her to Ammon under a hypocritical profession of gratitude for favours bestowed on him by the deity. And the female pope had to submit to the dictation with the best grace she could assume, protesting her affection for the adopted daughter who had ousted her own daughter from the throne. Human concubines Ammon in Roman times at a later period, when Egypt lay under the heel of Rome, the character of the divine consort of Ammon at Thebes had greatly changed. For at the beginning of our era, the custom was to appoint a young and beautiful girl, the scion of one of the noblest houses, to serve Ammon as his concubine. The Greeks called these maidens Pallades, 
apparently after their own virgin goddess palace but the conduct of the girls was by no means mainly for they led the loosest of lives till puberty then they were mourned over and given in marriage their graves were shown near thebes the reason why their services ended at puberty may have been that as concubines of the god they might not bear children to mortal fathers as it was deemed prudent to terminate their relations with the divinity before they were of an age to become mothers it was an egyptian doctrine that a mortal woman could conceive by a god but that a goddess could not conceive by a mortal man the certainty of maternity and the uncertainty of paternity suggest an obvious and probably sufficient ground for this theological distinction apollo and his prophetess epatara apollo was said to spend the winter months at patara in lycia and the summer months on the island of delos and accordingly he gave oracles for one half of the year in one place and for the other half in the other so long as he tarried at patara his prophetess was shut up with him in the temple every night the essence of artemis and ephesus at ephesus there was a college of sacred men called essenes or king bees who held office for a year during which they had to observe strict chastity and other rules of ceremonial purity how many of them there were at a time we do not know but there must have been several for in the ephesian inscriptions they are regularly referred to in the plural they cannot have been bound to lifelong celibacy for in one of the inscriptions the essen mentions his wife possibly they were deemed the annual husbands or Artemis, the great many-breasted goddess of fertility at ephesus whose association with the bee is vouched for by the figures of bees which appear commonly both on her statues and on the coins of ephesus this conjecture is right the king bees and their bee goddess Artemis at ephesus would be closely parallel to the king of the wood and his woodland goddess diana and nemi as these letter are interpreted by me the rule of chastity imposed on the king bees during their year of office would be easily explicable on this hypothesis as the temporary husbands of the goddess they would be expected for the time being to have no intercourse with mortal women just as the human wives of bel and ammon were supposed to have no commerce with mortal men marriage of dionysus to the queen at athens at athens the god of the vine dionysus was annually married to the queen and it appears that the consummation of the divine union as well as the espousals were enacted at the ceremony but whether the part of the god was played by a man or an image we do not know attic law required that the queen should be a burgess and should never have known any man but her husband she had to offer certain sacred sacrifices on behalf of the state and was permitted to see what no foreign woman might ever behold and to enter where no other athenian might set foot she was assisted in the discharge of her solemn functions by fourteen sacred women one for each of the altars of dionysus the old dionysiac festival was held on the twelfth day of the month anthestorian corresponding roughly to our february at the ancient sanctuary of dionysus in the marshes which was never open throughout the year save on that one day at this festival the queen exacted an oath of purity and chastity from the fourteen sacred women at the altar possibly her marriage was celebrated on the same day though of that we have no positive evidence and we learn from aristotle that the ceremony took place not at the sanctuary in the marshes but in the old official residence of the king known as the cattle store which stood near the britannium or town hall on the northeastern slope of the acropolis but whatever the date of the wedding its object can hardly have been any other than that of ensuring the fertility of the vines and other fruit trees of which dionysus was the god 
thus both in form and in meaning the ceremony would answer to the nuptials of the king and queen of may dionysus and ariadne again the story dear to poets and artists for the forsaken and sleeping ariadne waked and wedded by dionysus resembles so closely the little drama acted by french peasants of the alps on may day that considering the character of dionysus as a god of vegetation we can hardly help regarding it as the reflection of a spring ceremony like the french one in point of fact the marriage of dionysus and ariadne was believed by prelo to have been acted every spring in crete his evidence indeed is inconclusive but the view itself is probable if i am right in comparing the two the chief difference between the french and the greek ceremonies appears to have been that in the former the sleeper was a forsaken bridegroom in the latter a forsaken bride and the group of stars in the sky in which fancy saw ariadne's wedding crown may have been only a translation to heaven of the garland worn by the greek girl who played the queen of may marriage of zeus with demeter at Olesis. If at Athens, and probably elsewhere, the vine god was married to a queen in order that the vines might be loaded with clusters of grapes, there is reason to think that a marriage of a different kind intended to make the fields wave with yellow corn was annually celebrated not many miles off, beyond the low hills that bound the plain of Athens on the west. In the great mystery solemnized at Elysius in the month of September, the union of the sky god Zeus with the corn goddess Demeter, appears to have been represented by the union of the Hierophant with the priestess of Demeter, who acted the parts of god and goddess. But their intercourse is only dramatic or symbolical, for the Hierophant had temporarily deprived himself of his virility by an application of hemlock. The torches having been extinguished, the pair descended into a murky place, while the throng of worshippers awaited in anxious suspense the result of the mystic congress, which they believed their own salvation to depend. After a time, the Hierophant reappeared, and a blaze of light silently exhibited to the assembly a reaped ear of corn, the fruit of the divine marriage. Then, in a loud voice, he proclaimed, Queen Brimo has brought forth the sacred boy Brimos, by which he meant, the mighty one has brought forth the mighty. The corn mother, in fact, had given birth to her child, the corn and her travail pangs were enacted in the sacred drama this revelation of the reaped corn appears to have been the crowning act of the mysteries thus through the glamour shed round these rites by the poetry and philosophy of later ages there still looms like a distant landscape through a sunlit haze a simple rustic festival designed to cover the wide elysian plain with a plenteous harvest by winning the goddess of the corn to the sky god who fertilised the bare earth with genial showers Marriage of Zeus and Hera at Platania. But Zeus was not always a sky god, nor did he always marry the corn goddess. If in antiquity a traveller, quitting Elysius and passing through miles full of groves and cornfields, had climbed the pine-clad mountains of Citheron and ascended through the forest on their northern slope to Platea, he might have chanced to find the people of that little Boeotian town celebrating a different marriage of the great god to a different goddess. The ceremony described by a Greek antiquary, whose notebook has fortunately preserved for us not a few rural customs of ancient Greece, of which the knowledge would otherwise have perished. Every few years, the people of Plataea held a festival which they called the Little Daedala. On the day of the festival, they went out into an ancient oak forest 
the trees of which were of gigantic girth. There they set some boiled meat on the ground, and watched the birds that gathered round it. When a raven was observed to carry off a piece of the meat, and perched on an oak, the people followed it, and cut down the tree. With the wood of the tree, they made an image, dressed it as a bride, and placed it on a bullock cart, with the bridesmaid beside it. It seems then to have been drawn to the banks of the river Aesopus, and back to the town, attended by a piping and dancing crowd. After the festival, the image was put away and kept till the celebration of the great Daedala, which fell only once in sixty years, and was held by all the people of Boetia. On this occasion, all the images, fourteen in number, that had accumulated from the celebrations of little Daedala, were dragged on wains in procession to the river Aesopus, and then to the top of Mount Cithiron. There an altar had been constructed of square blocks of wood, fitted together with brushwood heaped over it. Animals were sacrificed by being burned on the altar, and the altar itself, together with the images, was consumed by the flames. The blaze, we are told, rose to a prodigious height and was seen for many miles. To explain the origin of the festival, a story ran that once upon a time, Hera had quarreled with Zeus, and left him in high dungeon. To lure her back, Zeus gave out that he was about to marry the nymph Pletia, daughter of the river Esulpus. He had a fine oak cut down, shaped and dressed as a bride, and conveyed on a bullock cart. Transported with rage and jealousy, Hera flew to the cart, and tearing off the veil of the pretended bride, discovered the deceit that had been practised on her. Her rage now turned to laughter, and she became reconciled to her husband Zeus. Resemblance of the Platean Ceremony to the Spring and Midsummer Festivals of Modern Europe the resemblance of this festival to some of the European spring and midsummer festivals is tolerably close. We have seen that in Russia, at which suntide, the villagers go out into the wood, fell a birch tree, dress it in women's clothes, and bring it back to the village with a dance and song. On the third day it is thrown into the water. Again we have seen that in Bohemia on midsummer eve, the village lads fell a tall fir or pine tree in the wood and set it up on a height where it is adorned with garlands, nosegays and ribbons, and afterwards burnt. The reason for burning the tree will appear afterwards. The custom itself is not uncommon in modern Europe. In some parts of the Pyrenees, a tall and slender tree is cut down on May Day and kept till Midsummer Eve. It is then rolled to the top of a hill, set up and burned. In Ogoleme, on St. Peter's Day, the 29th of June, a tall leafy poplar is set up in the marketplace and burned. Near Longcastan, in Cornwall, there is a large tumulus known as White Barrow, with a fosse round it. On the tumulus there was formerly a great bonfire on midsummer eve. A large summer pole was fixed in the centre, round which the fuel was heaped up. It had a large bush on top of it. Round this were parties of wrestlers contending for small prizes. The rustics believed that giants were buried in such mounds, and nothing would tempt them to disturb their bones. In Dublin on May morning, boys used to go out and cut a may bush, bring it back to town, and then burn it. All such ceremonies were originally magical rites, intended to bring about the effects which they dramatically represented. Probably the Boeotian festival belonged to the same class of rites. It represented the marriage of the powers of vegetation, the union of the oak god with the oak goddess, in spring or midsummer. Just as the same event is represented in modern Europe by a king and queen or a lord and lady of the May. In the Boeotian, as in the Russian ceremony, the tree dressed as a woman stands for the English Maypole and May Queen in one. All such ceremonies, and must be remembered, are not, or at least were not originally, 
mere spectacular or dramatic exhibitions. They are magical rites designed to produce the effect which they dramatically set forth. If the revival of vegetation in spring is mimicked by the awakening of a sleeper, the mimicry is intended actually to quicken the growth of leaves and blossoms. If the marriage of the powers of vegetation is simulated by a king and queen of May, the idea is that the powers thus personated will really be rendered more productive by the ceremony. In short, all these spring and midsummer festivals fall under the head of homeopathic or imitative magic. The thing which people wish to bring about they represent dramatically, and the very representation is believed to affect, or at least to contribute, to the production of the desired result. In the case of the Daedala, the story of Hera's quarrel with Zeus and her sullen retirement may perhaps without straining be interpreted as a mythical expression for a bad season and the failure of the crops. The same disastrous effects were attributed to the anger and seclusion of Demeter after the loss of her daughter, Persebrain. Now the institution of a festival is often explained by a mythical story, which relates how upon a particular occasion those very calamities occurred which it is the real object of the festival to avert so that if we know the myth told to account for the historical origin of the festival we can often infer from it the real intention with which the festival was celebrated if therefore the origin of the daedala was explained by a story of a failure of crops and consequent famine we may infer that the real object of the festival was to prevent the occurrence of such disasters and if i am right in my interpretation of the festival the object was supposed to be effected by dramatically representing the marriage of the divinities most concerned with the production of trees and plants. The marriage of Zeus and Hera was acted at annual festivals in various parts of Greece, and it is at least a fair conjecture that the nature and intention of these ceremonies were such as I have assigned to the Plataean festival of the Daedala. In other words, that Zeus and Hera at these festivals were the Greek equivalents of the Lord and Lady of the May. Homer's glowing picture of Zeus and Hera couched on fresh hyacinths and crocuses, like Milton's description of the delights of Zephyr and Aurora, as he made her once a maying, was perhaps painted from the life. The God Frey and his human wife in Sweden The sacred marriage of Zeus and Hera had, as was natural, its counterpart among the northern kinsfolk of the Greeks. In Sweden, every year a life-size image of Frey, the god of fertility, both animal and vegetable, was drawn about the country in a wagon, attended by a beautiful girl, who was called the god's wife. She acted also as his priestess in his great temple at Uppsala. Wherever the wagon came with the image of the god and his blooming young bride, the people crowded to meet them and offered sacrifices for a fruitful year. Once on a time, a Norwegian exile named Gunnar Helming gave himself out to be Frey in person, and rode about on a sacred wagon dressed up in the god's clothes. Everywhere the simple folk welcomed him as a deity, and observed with wonder and delight that a god walked among men and ate and drank just like other people. And when the months went by, and the god's fair young wife was seen to be with child, their joy waxed gratefully, for they thought, surely this is an omen of a fruitful season. It happened that the weather was then so mild, and the promise of a plenteous harvest so fair that no man ever remembered such a year before. But one night the god departed in haste, with his wife and all the gold and silver and fine raiment which he had got together, and though the Swedes made after him, they could not catch him. He was over the hills and far away in Norway. Similar Customs in Gaul Similar ceremonies appear to have been observed by the peasantry of Gaul in antiquity, for Gregory of Tours, 
writing in the sixth century of our era says that at autun the people used to carry about an image of a goddess in a wagon drawn by oxen the intention of the ceremony was to ensure the safety of the crops and vines and the rustics danced and sang in front of the image the old historian identifies the goddess with Cybele, the great mother goddess of phrygia and the identification would seem to be correct for we learn from another source that men wrought up to a pitch of frenzy by the shrill music of flutes and the clash of cymbals sacrificed their virility to the goddess dashing the severed portions of themselves against their image now this religious castration was a marked feature of the phrygian worship of Cybele, but it is alien to western modes of thought although it still finds favour with a section of the barbarous fanatical semi-oriental peasantry of russia but whether of native or of eastern origin the rites of the goddess of autun closely conform to those of the great phrygian goddess and appear to have been like them a perverted form of the sacred marriage which is designed to fertilize the earth and in which eunuchs strange as it may seem personated the lovers of the goddess the custom of marrying gods to images or to living persons is found also among uncivilized peoples custom of the Wadiaks. Thus the custom of marrying gods either to images or to human beings was widespread among the nations of antiquity. The ideas on which such a custom is based are too crude to allow us to doubt that the civilized Babylonians, Egyptians, and Greeks inherited it from their barbarous or savage forefathers. This presumption is strengthened when we find rites of a similar kind in vogue among the lower races. Thus, for example, we are told that once upon a time, the Wathiaks of the Malmyas district in Russia were distressed by a series of bad harvests. They did not know what to do, but at last concluded that their powerful but mischievous god, Keremet, must be angry at being unmarried. So a deputation of elders visited the Wathiaks of Kura and came to an understanding with them on the subject. Then they returned home, laid in a large stock of brandy, and having made ready a gaily decked wagon and horses, they drove in procession with bells ringing as they do when they are fetching home a bride, to the sacred grove at Kura. There they ate and drank merrily all night, and next morning they cut a square piece of turf in the grove and took it home with them. After this, though, it fared well with the people of Malmyas. It fared ill with the people of Kura, for in Malmyas the bread was good, but in Kura it was bad. Hence the men of Kura, who had consented to the marriage, were blamed and roughly handled by their indignant fellow villagers. What they meant by this marriage ceremony, says the writer who reports it, it is not easy to imagine. Perhaps, as Bechteru thinks, they meant to marry Keremet to the kindly and fruitful Mokalian, the earth wife, in order that she might influence him for good. This carrying of turf, like a bride in a wagon from a sacred grove, resembles the Plataean custom of carting an oak log as a bride from an ancient oak forest. And we have seen ground for thinking that the Plataean ceremony, like its Watiak counterpart, was intended as a charm to secure fertility. When wells are dug in Bengal, a wooden image of a god is made and married to the goddess of water. Custom of the Peruvian Indians Often the bride destined for the god is not a log or a clod, but a living woman of flesh and blood. The Indians of a village in Peru have been known to marry a beautiful girl, about fourteen years of age, to a stone shaped like a human being, which they regarded as a god, Huaca. All the villagers took part in the marriage ceremony, which lasted three days and was attended with much revelry. The girl thereafter remained a virgin and sacrificed to the idol for the people. They showed her the utmost reverence and deemed her divine. 
average of a woman to the son among the Blackfoot Indians. The Blackfoot Indians of North America used to worship the sun as their chief god, and they held a festival every year in his honour. For days before the new moon of August, the tribe halted on its march, and all hunting was suspended. Bodies of mounted men were on duty day and night to carry out the orders of the high priest of the sun. He enjoyed the people to fast and to take vapour baths during the four days before the new moon. Moreover, with the help of his council, he chose a vestal who was to represent the moon and to be married to the son of the festival. She might be either a virgin or a woman who had had but one husband. Any girl or woman found to have discharged the sacred duties without fulfilling the prescribed conditions was put to death. On the third day of preparation, after the last purification had been observed, they built a round temple of the sun. Posts were driven into the ground in a circle. These were connected with cross pieces, and the whole was covered with leaves. In the middle stood the sacred pole, supporting the roof. A bundle of many small branches of sacred wood, wrapped in a splendid buffalo robe, crowned the summit of the temple. The entrance was on the east, and within the sanctuary stood an altar on which rested the head of a buffalo. Beside the altar was the place reserved for the vestal. Here, on a bed prepared for her, she slept the sleep of war, as it was called. Her other duties consisted in maintaining a sacred fire of fragrant herbs, in presenting a lighted pipe to her husband the sun, and in telling the high priest the dream she dreamed during the sleep of war. On learning it, the priest had it proclaimed to the whole nation to the beat of drum. Marriage of girls to fishing nets among the Hurons and Algonquins Every year by the middle of March, when the season for fishing with the drag net began, the Algonquins and Hurons married their nets to two young girls aged six or seven. And the wedding feast in them was placed between the two maidens, and was exhorted to take courage and catch many fish. The reason for choosing the bride so young was to make sure that they were virgins. The origin of the custom is said to have been this. One year when the fishing season came round, the Algonquins cast their nets as usual but took nothing. Surprised at their want of success, they did not know what to make of it, till the soul of genius, Oki, of that appeared to them, in the likeness of a tall, well-built man, who said to them, in a great passion, I have lost my wife, and I cannot find one who has known no other man but me. That is why you do not succeed, and why you never will succeed till you give me satisfaction on this head. So the Alquaquins held a council, and resolved to appease the spirit of the net by marrying him to two such very young girls that he could have no ground of complaint on that score for the future. They did so, and the fishing turned out all that could be wished. The thing got wind among their neighbours, the Hurons, and they adopted the custom. A share of the catch was always given to the families of the two girls who acted as brides of the net for the year. Sacred Marriage of the Sun God and Earth Goddess Among the Orions The Orions of Bengal worship the Earth as a goddess, and annually celebrate her marriage with the Sun God, Dunami, at the time when the sal tree is in blossom. The ceremony is as follows. All bathe, then the men repair to the sacred grove, Sarna, while the women assemble at the house of the village priest. After sacrificing some fowls to the Sun God and the demon of the grove, the men eat and drink. The priest is then carried back to the village on the shoulders of a strong man. Near the village, the women meet the men and wash their feet. With beating of drums and singing, dancing and jumping, all proceed to the priest's house, which has been decorated with leaves and flowers. 
Then the usual form of marriage is performed between the priest and his wife, symbolizing the supposed union between the sun and earth. After the ceremony, all eat and drink and make merry. They dance and sing obscene songs and finally indulge in the vilest orgies. The object is to move the mother earth to become fruitful. Thus the sacred marriage of the sun and earth personated by the priest and his wife is celebrated as a charm to ensure the fertility of the ground. And with the same purpose, on the principle of homeopathic magic, the people indulge in a licentious orgy. Among the Salkar of New Britain, at the village of Colvergat, a certain man has charge of two stone figures, which are called respectively our grandfather, Nagur S., and our grandmother, Nagur Pei. They are said to be kept in a house built specially for the purpose. Fruits of the field were offered to them and left beside them to rot. When their guardian puts the two figures with their faces turned towards each other, the plantations are believed to flourish. But when he sets them back to back, there is dearth and the people suffer from eruptions on the skin. This turning of the two images face to face may be regarded as a simple form of sacred marriage between the two divine powers represented by them, who are clearly supposed to control the fertility of the plantations. Marriage of Women to Gods in India and Africa at the village of Basdora, in the Gurugan district of northwestern India, a fair is held on the 26th of the month Chait and the two following days. We are told that formerly girls of the Dinwar class used to be married to their god at the festivals, and that they always died soon afterwards. Of late years, the practice is said to have been discontinued. In Bihar, during the month of Sawan, August, crowds of women coin themselves nagin or wives of the snake, go about for two and a half days begging. During this time, they may neither sleep under a roof nor eat salt. Half the proceeds of their begging is given to Brahmans, and the other half spent in salt and sweetmeats which are eaten by all the villagers. Among the Iwe-speaking peoples of the slave coast in West Africa, human wives of gods are very common. In Dahomey, they swarm, and it has even been estimated that every fourth woman is devoted to the service of some deity. The chief business of these female Butaris is prostitution. In every town there is at least one seminary where the handsomest girls between 10 and 12 years of age are trained. They stay for three years, learning the chants and dances peculiar to the worship of the gods, and prostituting themselves to the priests and the inmates of the male seminaries. At the end of their novicate, they become public harlots, but no disgrace attached to their profession, for it is believed that they are married to the god and that their excesses are caused and directed by him. Strictly speaking, they should confine their favours to the male worshippers of the temple, but in practice they bestow them indiscriminately. Children born of such unions belong to the deity. As the wives of a god, these sacred women may not marry, but they are not bound to the service of the divinity for life. Some only bury his name and sacrifice to him on their birthdays, Amongst these polygamous West African gods, the sacred python seems to be particularly associated with the fertility of the earth, freeze and vote in excessively wet, dry and barren seasons, and the time of year when young girls are sought to be his brides is when the millet is beginning to sprout. Women Married to Water Gods It deserves to be remarked that the supernatural being to whom women are married is often a god or spirit of water. Thus Makasa the god of Victoria, the Yanza Lake, who is propitiated by the Baganta every time they undertook a long voyage, had virgins provided for him to serve as his wives. 
Like the Vestals, they were bound to chastity, but unlike the Vestals, they seem to have been often unfaithful. The custom lasted until Mwanga was converted to Christianity. The Akikuyu of British East Africa worshipped the snake of a certain river, and at intervals of several years they married the snake god to women, but especially to young girls. For this purpose, huts are built by order of the medicine men, who then consummate the sacred marriage with the credulous female devotees. If the girls do not repair to the huts of their own accord in sufficient numbers, they are seized and dragged thither to the embraces of the deity. The offspring of these mystic unions appears to be fathered on God, Nagai. Certainly, there are children among the Akikyu who pass for children of God. In Kentung, one of the principal Shan states of Upper Burma, the spirit of the Nongtung Lake is regarded as very powerful and is propitiated with offerings in the eighth month about July of each year. A remarkable feature of the worship of this spirit consists in the dedication of him to four virgins in marriage. Custom requires that this should be done once in every three years. It was actually done by the late king or chief, Sobois, in 1893, but down to 1901, the rite has been performed by his successor. The following are the chief features of the ceremony. The virgins who are wed to the spirit of the lake must be of pure Kon race. Orders are sent out for the Kon of the valley to attend. From these unmarried women of suitable age, ten are selected. These are as beautiful as may be, and must be without spot or blemish. Four maidens out of the ten are chosen by lot, and carefully dressed in new garments. A festival is held, usually at the house of the chief minister, where the girls sit on a raised platform. Four old women, thought to be possessed by spirits, enter and remain as long as the feast lasts. During this time, anything they may want, such as food, betel, or cheroots, is handed to them by the four girls. Apparently, the old women pass for representatives of the spirit, hence they are waited on by the maidens destined to be his wives. Dotage, blindness, or any great infirmity of age seems to be accounted possession by a spirit for the purposes of this function. When the feast is over, the maidens are formally presented to the spirit, along with the various sacrifices and offerings. They are next taken to the chief's residence, where strings are tied round their waists by the ministers and elders to guard them against ill luck. Usually they sleep a night or two at the place, after which they may return to their homes. There seems to be no objection to their marrying afterwards. If nothing happens to any of the four, it is believed that the spirit of the lake loves them but little, but if one of them dies soon after the ceremony, it shows that she has been accepted by him. The spirit is propagated with the sacrifice of pigs, fowls, and sometimes a buffalo. Egyptian custom of drowning a girl as a sacrifice to the Nile in this last custom, the death of the woman is regarded as a sign that the god has taken her to himself. Sometimes, apparently, it has not been left to the discretion of the divine bridegroom to take or leave his human bride. She was made over to him once for all in death. When the Arabs conquered Egypt, they learned that the annual rise of the Nile, the Egyptians were wont to deck a young virgin in gay apparel and throw her into the river as a sacrifice, in order to attain a plentiful inundation. The Arab general abolished the barbarous custom. It is said that under the Tang dynasty the Chinese used to marry a young girl to the Yellow River once a year by drowning her in the water. 
for this purpose the witches chose the fairest damsel they could find and themselves superintended the fatal marriage at last the local mandarin a man of sense of humanity forbade the custom but the witches disregarded his edicts and made their preparations for their usual murder so when the day was come the magistrate appeared on the scene with his soldiers and had all the witches bound and thrown into the river to drown telling them that no doubt the god would be able to choose his bride for himself from among them girls sacrificed as brides of crocodiles the prince of Kopang, a state in the east indian isle of timor deemed themselves descended from crocodiles and on the coronation of a new prince a solemn sacrifice was made to the crocodiles in presence of the people the offerings consisted of a pig with red bristles and a young girl prettily dressed perfumed and decked with flowers she was taken down to the bank of the river and set on a sacred stone in a cave then one of the prince's guards summoned the crocodiles soon one of the beasts appeared and dragged the girl down into the water the people thought that he married her and that if he did not find her a maid he would bring her back on festal occasions in the same state a newborn girl was sometimes dedicated to a crocodile and then with certain ceremonies of consecration brought up to be married to a priest it is said that once when the inhabitants of Kayeli in Buru, another East Indian island, were threatened with destruction by a swarm of crocodiles, they ascribed the misfortune to a passion which the prince of the crocodiles had conceived for a certain girl. Accordingly, they compelled the damsel's father to dress her in bridal ray and deliver her over to the clutches of her crocodile lover. Virgin sacrificed as a bride to the genie of the sea in the Maldive Islands a usage of the same sort is reported to have prevailed in the Maldive islands before the conversion of the inhabitants to islam the famous arab traveller ibn battuta has described the custom and the manner in which it came to an end he was assured by several trustworthy natives whose names he gives that when the people of the islands were idolaters there appeared to them every month an evil spirit among the jinn who came from across the sea in the likeness of a ship full of burning lamps the want of the inhabitants as soon as they perceived him was to take a young virgin have adorned her to lead her to a heathen temple that stood on the shore with a window looking out to sea there they left the damsel for the night and when they came back in the morning they found her a maid no more and dead every month they drew lots and he upon whom the lot fell gave up his daughter to the genie of the sea in time there came to them a berber named abu leberkat who knew the koran by heart he lodged in the house of an old woman of the isle of mahal one day visiting his hostess he found that she had gathered her family about her and that the women were weeping as if there were a funeral on inquiring to the cause of their distress he learned that the lot had fallen on the old woman and that she had an only daughter who must be slain by the evil genie abu abelkat said to the old dame i will go this night instead of thy daughter now he was quite beardless so when the night was come they took him and after he had performed his evolutions they put him in the temple of idols he set himself to recite the koran then the demon appeared at the window but the man went on with his recitation no sooner was the genie within hearing of the holy words that he dived into the sea when morning broke the old woman and her family and the people of the island came according to their custom to carry away the girl and burn her body they found the stranger repeating the koran and took him to their king whose name was Chenorazar and made him relate his adventure the king was astonished at it the berber proposed to the king that he should embrace islam
Chenorza said to him, Tarry with us till next month. If thou shalt do what thou hast done, and shalt escape from the evil genie, I will be converted. The genie of the sea and his bride in the Maldive Islands. The stranger abode with the idolaters, and God disposed the king's heart to receive the true faith. So before the month was out, he became a Muslim he and his wives and his children and the people of his court. And when the next month began, the Berber was conducted to the temple of idols, but the demon did not appear, and the Berber set himself to recite the Koran till break of day. Then the sultan and his subjects broke the idols and demolished the temple. The people of the island embraced Islam and sent messages to the other isles, and their inhabitants were converted likewise. But by reason of the demon, many of the Maldive islands were depopulated before their conversion to Islam. When Ibn Batuta himself landed in the country, he knew nothing of these things. One night, he was going about his business. He heard of a sudden people saying in a loud voice, There is no God but God, and God is great. He saw children carrying copies of the Quran on their heads, and when beating on the basins and vessels of copper. He was astonished at what they did, and he said, What has happened? They answered, Doubtst thou not behold the sea? He looked towards the sea, and beheld in the darkness, as it were, a great ship full of burning lamps and crescents. They said to him, That is the demon. It is his wont to show himself once a month. But after we have done that which thou hast seen, he returns his place, and does us no manner of harm. The story based on the phosphorescence of the sea. It occurred to me that this myth of the demon lover may have been based on some physical phenomenon, electrical, lunar, or otherwise, which is periodically seen at night in the Maldive Islands. Accordingly, I consulted Professor J. Stanley Gardiner, a foremost authority on the archipelago. His answer, which confers my conjecture, runs thus. A peculiar phosphorescence, like the glow of a lamp hidden by a roughened glass shade, is occasionally visible on lagoon shoals in the Maldives. I imagine it to have been due to some single animal with a greater phosphorescence than any at present known to us a periodical appearance of some phase in the moon due to reproduction is not improbable and has parallels the myth still exists in the maldives but in a rather different form he has said a number of these animals might of course appear on some shoal near mail the principal island of the group to the eyes of the ignorant and superstitious such a mysterious glow suddenly lighting up the sea in the dusk of the evenings might well appear a phantom ship hung with burning lamps bearing down on the devoted islands and the stillness of the night the roar of the surf from the barrier reef might sound in their ears like the voice of the demon calling for its prey end of section seven section eight of the golden bough the magic art and the evolution of kings volume two by james fraser this is a librivox recording all LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 12. The Sacred Marriage. Part 3. Sacrifices to Water Spirits. Stories of the Perseus and Andromeda Type. Ibn Battuta's narrative of the demon lover and his mortal brides closely resembles a well-known type of folktale of which versions have been found from Japan to Anam in the east to Senegambia, Scandinavia, and Scotland in the west. The story varies in details from people to people, but as commonly told, it runs thus. A certain country is infested by a many-headed serpent 
dragon, or other monster, which would destroy the whole people if a human victim, generally a virgin, were not delivered up to him periodically. Many victims had perished, and at last it has fallen to the lot of the king's own daughter to be sacrificed. She is exposed to the monster, but the hero of the tale, generally a young man of humble birth, interposes in her behalf, slays the monster, and receives the hand of the princess as his reward. In many of the tales, the monster, who is sometimes described as a serpent, inhabits the water of the sea, a lake, or a fountain. In other versions, he is a serpent or dragon who takes possession of the springs of water and only allows the water to flow or the people to make use of it on condition of receiving a human victim. Water spirits conceived as serpents or dragons. It would probably be a mistake to dismiss all these tales as pure inventions of the storyteller. Rather, we may suppose that they reflect a real custom of sacrificing girls or women to be the wives of water spirits, who are very often conceived as great serpents or dragons. Elsewhere I have cited many instances of this belief in serpent-shaped spirits of water. Here it may be worth while to add a few more. Thus, the watermonger of Central Australia perform elaborate ceremonies to appease or curse a gigantic but purely mythical water snake who is said to have destroyed a number of people. Some of the natives of Western Australia fear to approach large pools, supposing them to be inhabited by a great serpent, who would kill them if they dared to drink or draw water there by night. The Indians in New Granada believed that when the mother of all mankind, named Bachul, was grown old, she and her husband plunged into the lake of Iguagu, where they were changed into two enormous serpents, which still live in the lake and sometimes show themselves. The Oyampi Indians of French Guiana imagine that each waterfall has a guardian in the shape of a monstrous snake who lies hidden under the eddy of the cascade, but has sometimes been seen to lift up its huge head. To see it as fatal, canoe and Indians are then dragged down to the bottom, where the monster swallows all the men and sometimes the canoe also. Hence the Oyampians never name the waterfall till they have passed it, for fear that the snake at the bottom of the water might hear its name and attack the rash intruders. The Huicol Indians in Mexico adore water. Springs are sacred, and the gods in them are mothers or serpents that rise with the clouds and descend as fructifying rain. The Tarahumars, another Indian tribe of Mexico, think that every river, pool, and spirit has its serpent, who causes the water to come up out of the earth. All these water serpents are easily offended. Hence, the Tarahumars place their houses some little way from the water and will not sleep near it when they are on a journey. Whenever they construct weirs to catch fish, they take care to offer fish to the water serpent of the river, and when they are away from home and are making pinol, that is, toasted maize meal, they drop the first of the pinol into the water as an offering to the serpents, who would otherwise try to seize them and chase them back to their own land. In Basutherland, rivers Katain and Meritsayain tumble, with a roar of waters and a cloud of iridescent spray into vast chasms hundreds of feet deep. The Basutos fear to approach the foot of these huge falls, for they think that a spirit in the shape of a gigantic snake haunts the seething cauldron which receives the falling waters. Sacrifices of Human Beings to Water Spirits The perils of the sea, of floods, of rapid rivers, of deep pools and lakes, naturally account for the belief that water spirits are fickle and dangerous beings, who need to be appeased by sacrifices. Sometimes these sacrifices consist of animals, 
such as horses and bulls, but often the victims are human beings. Thus at the mouth of the Bonnie River there is a dangerous bar in which vessels trading to the river have been lost. This is bad for business, and accordingly the Negroes used to sacrifice a young man annually to the spirit of the bar. The handsomest youth was chosen for the purpose, and for many months before the ceremony he lodged with the king. The people regarded him as sacred, or juju, and whatever he touched, even when he passed casually through the streets, shared his sanctity, and belonged to him. Hence, whenever he appeared in public, the inhabitants fled before him, lest he should touch their garments or anything they might be carrying. He was kept in ignorance of the fate in store for him, and no one might inform him of it under pain of death. On an appointed day he was taken out to the bar in a canoe and induced to jump into the water. Then the rowers plied their paddles and left him to drown. A similar ceremony used to be performed at the New Calabar River, but the victim was a culprit. He was thrown into the water to be devoured by the sharks, which are there the principal fetish or juju. The chiefs of Duke Town on the same coast of Guinea were wont to make an annual offering to the river. A young woman of a light colour or an albino was chosen as the victim on a set day they decked her with finery took her down to parrot island and with much ceremony plunged her in the stream the fishermen Erfiat, at the mouth of the river are still said to observe the right in order to ensure a good catch of fish the king of dahomey used to send from time to time a man dressed out with the insignia of office to Wadda, to be drowned at the mouth of the river the intention of the sacrifice was to attract merchant ships when a fisherman is being carried off by a crocodile, some of the natives on the banks of Lake Tanganyaka take this for a sign that the spirit deems himself slighted, since he is obliged to come and find victims for himself instead of having them presented to him. Hence the sources generally decide that a second victim is wanted. So having chosen one, they bind him hand and foot and fling him into the lake to feed the crocodiles. The crater of the volcano Toluca in Mexico encloses two lakes of clear cold water surrounded by gloomy forests of pine here in the eighteenth months of the toltec year answering to february children beautifully dressed and decked with flowers and gay feathers used to be drowned as an offering to tlaloc the god of the waters and had a fine temple on the spot the chams of anam had traditions of a time when living men were thrown into the sea every year in order to propitiate the deities who looked after the fishing and when children of good family were drowned in the water channels in order that the rice fields might be duly irrigated. Water spirits considered as beneficent beings who dispense fertility. This last instance brings out a more kindly aspect of the water spirits. If these beings are dreaded by the fisherman and the mariner who tempt the angry sea, and by the huntsman who has to swim or ford the rushing rivers, they are viewed in a different light by the shepherd and the husbandmen in hot and arid lands, where the pasture for the cattle and the produce of the fields alike depend on the supply of water, where prolonged drought means starvation and death for man and beast. To men in such circumstances, the spirits of the waters are beneficent beings, the dispensers of life and fertility, wherever their blessings descend as rain from heaven or well up as springs of bubbling water in the parched desert. In the Semitic East, for example, where the rainfall is precarious or confined to certain seasons, the face of the earth is bare and withered for most of the year, except where it is kept fresh by irrigation or by the percolation of underground water. Here, accordingly, the local gods, or Balaam, had their seats originally in spots of natural fertility, by fountains in the banks of rivers, in groves and tangled thickets and green glades of mountain hollows and deep water courses. 
as laws of the springs and subterranean waters they were supposed to be the sources of all the gifts of the land the corn the wine and the oil the wood and the flax the vines and the fig trees water spirits conceived as bestowing offspring on women where water spirits are thus conceived as the authors of fertility in general it is natural that they should be held to extend the sphere of their operations to men and animals in other words that the power of bestowing offspring on barren women and cattle should be ascribed to them this description comes out clearly in a custom observed by syrian women at the present day some of the channels of the orontes are used for irrigation but at a certain season of the year the streams are turned off and the dry bed of the channels is cleared of mud and any other matter that might clog the flow of the water the first night that the water is turned on again it is said to have the power of procreation accordingly barren women take their places in the channel waiting for the embrace of the water spirit in the rush of the stream again a pool of water in a cave at juna enjoys the same reputation the people think a childless couple who bathe in the water will have offspring in india many wells are supposed to cure sterility which is universally attributed to the agency of evil spirits the water of seven wells is collected on the night of the diwali or a feast of lamps and barren women bathe in it in order to remove their reproach there is a well in orissa where the priests throw betel nuts into the mud childless women scramble for the nuts and she who finds them will be a happy mother before long for the same reason after childbirth an indian mother is taken to worship the village well she walks round it in the course of the sun and smears the platform with red lead which may be substituted for blood a Kanda priest will take a childless woman for the mating of two streams where he makes an offering to the god of births and sprinkles a woman with water in order to rid her of the influence of the spirit who hinders conception in the Punjab, a barren woman who desires to become a mother will sometimes be let down into a well on a sunday or tuesday night during the diwali festival after stripping herself of her clothes and bathing in the water she is drawn up again and performs the chakpurna ceremony with incantations taught by a wizard when the ceremony has been performed the well is supposed to run dry its quickening and fertilizing virtue has been abstracted by the woman the indian sect of the Vallabhacharyas or maharajas believe that bathing in a sacred well is a remedy for barrenness in women in antiquity the waters asunusa in campania were thought to bless childless wives with offspring to this day syrian women resort to hot springs in order to obtain children from the saint or genie of the waters in scotland the same fertilizing virtue used to be and probably still is ascribed to certain springs wives who wished to become mothers formerly resorted to the well of st philan at comrie and to the wells of st mary at whitekirk and in the isle of may in the iran islands off the coast of galway women desirous of children pray at st Ine's well by the angel's walk and the men pray at the rag well by the church the four comely ones at Ornott. Charles Will in Oxford was supposed to have the virtue of making barren women to bring forth. Near Bringfield in Northumberland, there is a copious sulphur spring known as the Borwell. On the Sunday following the fourth day of July, that is about Midsummer's Day, according to the old style, great crowds of people used to assemble at the well from all the surrounding hamlets and villages. The scene was like a fair stalls for the sale of refreshments being brought and set up for the occasion the neighbouring slopes were terraced and seats formed for the convenience of pilgrims and visitors barren women prayed at the well that they might become mothers if their faith was strong enough their prayers were heard within the year
Love of river spirits for women in Greek mythology. In Greek mythology, similar ideas of the procreative power of water meet us in stories of the loves of rivers for women in the legends, which trace the descent of heroes and heroines from river gods. In Sophocles' play of the Trachinian women, Degenera tells how she was wooed by the river Achelous, who came to her father and claimed her hand, appearing in the likeness now of a bull, now of a serpent, now of being with the body of a man and the front of an ox, while streams of water flowed from his shaggy beard. She relates, too, how glad she was how Hercules presented himself and vanquished the river god in single combat and took her to wife. The legend, perhaps, preserves a reminiscence of that custom of providing a water god with a human wife, which has been practised elsewhere. The motive of such a custom may have varied with the particular conception which happened to prevail of the character of the water gods, where he was supposed to be a cruel and destructive being who drowned men and laid waste the country. A wife would be offered simply to keep him in good humour, and so prevent him from doing mischief. But where he was viewed as a procreative power on whom the fertility of earth and the fecundity of men and animals depended, his marriage would be deemed necessary for the purpose of enabling him to discharge his beneficial functions. This belief in the amorous character of rivers comes out plainly in a custom which was observed at Troy down to classical times. Maidens about to marry were wont to bathe in the Scamander, saying as they did so, Scamander, take my virginity. A similar custom appears to have been observed at the river Meander, and perhaps in other parts of the Greek world. Occasionally it would seem young men took advantage of the practice to ravage the girls, and the offerings of such a union was fathered on the river god. The bath which a Greek bride and bridegroom regularly took before marriage appears to have been intense to bless their union with offspring through the fertilizing influence of the water nymphs. In Europe, the custom of marrying a woman to a water spirit survives only in tales and pageants. Thus it would appear that in many parts of the world a custom has prevailed of sacrificing human beings to water spirits, and that, in not a few cases, the ceremony has taken the form of making over a woman to the spirit to be his wife, in order either to pacify his fury or to give play to his generative powers. Where the water spirit was regarded as female, young men might be presented to her for a similar purpose, and this may be the reason why the victims sacrificed to water spirits are sometimes males. Among civilized peoples, these customs survive, for the most part, only in popular tales, of which the legend of Perseus and Andromeda, with its medieval counterpart of St. George and the Dragon, is the most familiar example. But occasionally they appear to have left traces of themselves in ceremonies and pageants. Midsummer custom of slaying the dragon at the Firth in Bavaria. Thus, at Firth in Bavaria, a drama called The Slaying of the Dragon used to be acted every year about midsummer on the Sunday after Corpus Christi Day. Crowds of spectators flocked from the neighbourhood to witness it. The scene of the performance was the public square. On a platform stood or sat a princess, wearing a golden crown on her head, and as many silver ornaments on her body as could be borrowed for the purpose. She was attended by a maid of honour. Opposite her was stationed the dragon, a dreadful monster of painted canvas stretched on a wooden skeleton and moved by two men inside. From time to time, the creature would rush into gaping jaws from the dense crowd of spectators who retreated hastily, tumbling over each other in their anxiety to escape. Then a knight in armour, attended by his men-at-arms, rode forth and asked the princess what she did on this hard stone, and why she looked so sad. She told him that the dragon was coming to eat her up. On that the knight bade her be of good cheer, and that for his sword he would rid the country of the monster. 
With that he charged the dragon, thrusting his spear into its maw, and taking care to stab a bladder of bullock's blood which was there concealed. The gush of blood which followed was an indispensable part of the show, and the knight missed his stroke, he was unmercifully jeered and taunted by the crowd. Having dispatched the monster with sword and pistol, the knight then hastened to the princess, and told her that he had slain the dragon who had so long oppressed the town. In return she tied a wreath round his arm, and announced that her noble father and mother would soon come to give them half the kingdom. The men-at-arms then escorted the knight and the princess to the tavern, there to end the day with dance and revelry. Bohemians and Bavarians came from many miles to witness this play of the slaying of the dragon, and when the monster's blood streamed forth, they eagerly mopped it up, along with the blood-soaked earth, in white cloths, which they afterwards laid on the flax fields, in order that the flax might thrive and grow tall. For the dragon's blood was thought to be a sure protection against witchcraft. This use of the blood suffices to prove that the slaying of the dragon at Firth was not a mere popular spectacle, but a magical rite designed to fertilise the fields. As such, it probably descended from a very remote antiquity, and may well have been invested with the character of solemnity, in order of tragedy, long before it degenerated into a farce. St. Romain delivers Runen from a dragon. More famous was the dragon from which, according to legend, St. Romain delivered Rouen, and far more impressive was the ceremony with which, down to the French Revolution, the city commemorated its deliverance. The stately and beautiful edifices of the Middle Ages which still adorned Rouen, form a fitting background for a pageant which carried the mind back to the days when Henry II of England and Richard Coeur de Lyon, Duke's Normandy, still had their palace in this ancient capital of their ancestral domains. Legend ran that about the year 520 A.D., a forest or marsh in the city was infested by a monstrous beast in the shape of a serpent or dragon, which every day brought great harm to Rouen and its neighbourhood, devouring man and beast, causing boats and mariners on the river Seine to perish, and inflicting other woes innumerable on the commonwealth. And last, the archbishop, Central Maine, resolved to beard the monster in his den. He could get none to accompany him but a prisoner condemned to death for murder. On their approach, the dragon made as though he would swallow them up, but the archbishop, relying on the divine help, made the sign of the cross, and at once the monster became so gentle that he suffered the saint to bind him with his stole and the murderer to lead him like a lamb to the slaughterer. Thus they went in procession to a public place in Rowan, where the dragon was burned in the presence of the people, and his ashes cast into the river. In memory of this deliverance, the archbishop and chapter of Rowan were annually allowed to pardon a malefactor on Ascension Day. The murderer was pardoned for his services, and the fame of the deed having gone abroad, St. Romain, or his successor, St. Thorin, whose memory is enshrined in a church of dreamlike beauty at Rowan, obtained from King Dagobert, in perpetuity, a privilege for the archbishop, dean and canons of the cathedral, to wit, that every year on Ascension Day, the anniversary of the miracle, they should pardon and release from prison a malefactor, whomsoever they choose, and wherever the crime of which he had been guilty. This privilege, unique in France, was claimed by the chapter of the cathedral as early as the beginning of the 13th century, for in 1210 the governor of the castle Rouen, having boggled at giving up a prisoner, the chapter appealed to King Philip Augustus, who caused an inquiry to be made into the claim. This inquiry nine witnesses swore that never in the reigns of Henry II and Richard Cordillon, Duke's Normandy, had there been any difficulty raised on the point in question. Henceforward, the chapter seems to have enjoyed the right without opposition down to 1790, when it exercised its privilege of mercy for the last time. Next year, the face of things had changed. There was neither archbishop nor chapter of Rowan. 
a register of the names of the prisoners who were pardoned together with the accounts of their crimes was kept and still exists only a few of the names in the thirteenth century are known and there are many gaps in the first half of the fourteenth century but from that time onward the register is nearly complete most of the crimes appear to have been murder or homicide ceremony of the annual pardon and release of a prisoner in ruin the proceedings on the great day of pardon varied somewhat in different ages the following account is based in great part on a description written in the reign of henry the third and published at ruin in fifteen eighty seven fifteen days before ascension day the canons of the cathedral summoned the king's officers to stop all proceedings against criminals detained in prison afterwards on the monday orogations two canons examined the prisoners and took their confessions going from prison to prison till ascension day on that day about seven o'clock in the morning all the canons assembled in the chapter house and invoked the grace of the holy spirit by the hymn veni creator spiritus and other prayers also they made oath to reveal none of the depositions of the criminals but to hold them sacred under the seal of confession the depositions having been taken and the commissioners heard the chapter after due deliberation named him or her among the prisoners who was to receive the benefit of the privilege a card bearing the prisoner's name and sealed with the seal of the chapter was then sent to the members of parliament who were sitting in full assembly clad in their red robes in the great hall of the palace to receive the nomination of the prisoner and to give it legal effect the criminal was then released and pardoned immediately the minister bells began to ring the doors of the cathedral were flung open the organ pealed hymns were sung candles lit and every solemnity observed in token of joy and gladness further in presence of the conclave all the depositions of the other prisoners were burnt on the altar of the chapter house then the archbishop and the whole of the clergy of the cathedral went in procession to the great square known as the old tower near the river carrying the shrines and reliquaries of the minster and accompanied by the joyous music of hautboys and clarions apparently the old tower occupies the site of the ancient castle of the dukes of normandy and the custom of going thither in possession came down from a time when the prisoners were detained in the castle dungeons in the square there stood and still stands a platform of stone raised high above the ground and approached by flights of steps thither they brought the shrine Fierte, of saint romain and thither too was led to pardon prisoner he ascended the platform and after confessing his sins and receiving absolution he thrice lifted the shrine of saint romain where the innumerable multitude assembled in the square cried aloud each time the shrine was lifted noel 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 which was understood to mean god be with us that done the procession reformed and returned to cathedral at the head walked a beadle clad in violet who bore on a pole the wicker effigy of the winged dragon of notre dame holding a large fish in its mouth the whispers and cries excited by the appearance of the monster were drowned in the loud fanfares of cornets clarions and trumpets behind the musicians who wore the liveries of the master of the brotherhood notre dame with his arms emblazoned on ensign of taffeta came the carved silver gilt shrine of notre dame after it followed the clergy of the cathedral to the number of two hundred clad in robes of violet or crimson silk bearing banners crosses and shrines and chanting the hymn de resurrection domini then came the archbishop giving his blessings to the great multitude who thronged the streets the prisoner himself walked behind bareheaded crowned with flowers carrying one end of the litter which supported the shrine of saint romain the fetters 
he had worn hung from the litter and with him placed with lighted torches in their hands the men and women who for the last seven years had in like manner received their pardon now the beetle in a vile livery marched behind bearing aloft on a pole of the wicker effigy of the dragon gargoyle destroyed by saint romain in its mouth the dragon sometimes held a live animal such as a young fox a rabbit or a sucking pig and it was attended by the brotherhood of the gargoyards the clergy of the thirty-two parishes of ruin also took part in the procession which moved from the old tower to the cathedral amid the acclamations of the crowd while from every church tower in the city the bells rang out a joyous peal the great georges d'ambriose thundering above them all after mass being performed in the cathedral the prisoner was taken to the house of the master of the brotherhood of saint romain where he was magnificently feasted lodged and served over humble his rank next morning he again presented himself to the chapter where kneeling in the presence of a great assembly he was severely reproved for his sins and admonished to give thanks to god to saint romain and to the canons for the pardon he had received in virtue of the privilege history and meaning of the privilege of the fiatre or shrine of saint romain in ruin what was the origin and meaning of this remarkable privilege of the fiatre as the shrine of saint romain was called its history has been carefully investigated by a floquet chief registrar of the royal court of ruin with the aid of all the documentary evidence including the archives both the ruin and paris he appears to have shown conclusively that the association of saint romain with the custom is comparatively late we possess a life of the saints in latin verse dating from the eighth century in which the miracles said to have been wrought by him are set forth in a strain of pompous eulogy yet neither in it nor in any of the other early lives of saint romain and saint owen nor in any of the older chronicles and metrologies is a single word said about the destruction of the dragon and the deliverance of the prisoner it is not till thirteen ninety four that we meet for the first time with a mention of the miracle moreover the deliverance of the prisoner can hardly have been instituted in honour of saint romain else it would have taken place on the twenty third of october the day in which the church of rowan celebrates the translation of the saint's bones to the cathedral saint romain died in six hundred thirty eight and his bones were transferred to the cathedral of rowan at the end of the eleventh or the beginning of the twelfth century further Flockwood has adduced strong grounds for believing that the privileged claims by the chapter of ruin of annually pardoning a condemned criminal on ascension day was unknown in the early years of the twelfth century and that it originated in the reign of henry i or stephen if not that of henry the second he supposes the ceremony to have been in its origin a scenic representation of the triumph of christ over sin and death the deliverance of the condemned prisoner symbolizing the deliverance of man from the yoke of corruption and bringing home to the people in a visible form the great mystery which the festival of the ascension was instituted to commemorate such dramatic expositions of christian doctrine he points out were common in the middle ages suggested origin of the custom plausible as is this solution of the problem it can scarcely be regarded as satisfactory had this been the real origin of the privilege we should expect to find the ascension of christ either plainly enacted or at least distinctly alluded to in the ceremony but this so far as we can learn was not so again would it not savour of blasphemy to represent the sinless and glorified redeemer by a ruffian stained with the blackest crimes moreover the part played by the dragon in the legend and in the spectacle seems too important to allow us to explain it away 
with Lequette as mere symbol of the suppression of paganism by St. Romain, the tale of the conquest of the dragon is older than Christianity and cannot be explained by it. A ruin the connection of St. Romain with the story seems certainly to be late, but that does not prove the story itself to be late also. Judging from the analogy of similar tales elsewhere, we may conjecture that in the Rowan version the criminal represents a victim annually sacrificed to a water spirit or other fabulous being, while the Christian saint has displaced a pagan hero, who was said to have delivered the victim from death and put an end to the sacrifice by slaying the monster. Thus it seems possible that the custom of annually pardoning a condemned malefactor may have superseded an older practice of treating him as a public scapegoat who died to save the rest of the people. In the sequel, we shall see that such customs have been observed in many lands. It is not incredible that had Rowan a usage of this sort should have survived in a modified shape from pagan times down to the twelfth century, and that the church should at last have intervened to save the wretch and turn a relic of heathendom to the glory of God in St. Romain. But this explanation of the famous privilege of the Fete is put forward with a full sense of the difficulties attending it and with no wish to dogmatise on so obscure a subject. End of section 8section nine of the golden bough part one the magic art and the evolution of kings volume two by james george fraser this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information on the volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. recorded by leon harvey chapter thirteen the kings of rome and alba part one numa and Egeria. Egeria and Nemai, a nymph of water and of the oak, perhaps a form of Diana. From the foregoing survey of custom and legend, we may infer that the sacred marriage of the powers both of vegetation and of water has been celebrated by many peoples for the sake of promoting the fertility of the earth, on which the life of animals and men ultimately depends, and that in such rites the part of the divine bridegroom or bride is often sustained by a man or woman. The evidence may, therefore, lend some countenance to the conjecture that in the sacred grove of Nemi, where the powers of vegetation and of water manifested themselves in the fair forms of shady woods, tumbling cascades, and glassy lake, a marriage like that of our king and queen of May was annually celebrated between the mortal king of the wood and the immortal queen of the wood, Diana. In this connection, an important figure in the grove was a modern nymph, Egeria, who was worshipped by a pregnant woman because she, like Diana, could grant them an easy delivery. From this it seems fairly safe to conclude that, like many other springs, the water of Egeria was credited with a power of facilitating conception as well as delivery. The votive offerings found on the spot, which clearly refer to the begetting of children, may possibly have dedicated to Egeria rather than to Diana, or perhaps we should rather say that the water nymph Egeria is only another form of the great nature goddess Diana herself, the mistress of sounding rivers as well as umbrageous woods who had her home by the lake and her mirror in its calm waters and as greek counterpart artemis loved to haunt mares and springs the identification of egeria with diana is confirmed by a statement of plutarch that egeria was one of the oak nymphs whom the romans believed to preside over every green oak grove 
for while diana was a goddess of the woodlands in general she appears to have been imitatively associated with oaks in particular especially at a sacred grove of nemai perhaps then nigeria was the fairy of a spring that flowed from the roots of a sacred oak such a spring is said to have gushed from the foot of the great oak at dodona and from its murmurous flow the priestess drew oracles among the greeks a drought of water from certain sacred springs or wells was supposed to confer prophetic powers this would explain the more than mortal wisdom with which according to tradition Egeria inspired her royal husband or lover numa the legend of the nubatuls of numa and Egeria may be a reminiscence of a sacred marriage which the kings of rome contracted with a goddess of water and of vegetation when we remember how very often in early society the king is held responsible for the fall of rain and the fruitfulness of the earth it seems hardly rash to conjecture that in the legend of the nuptials of numa and Egeria we have a reminiscence of a sacred marriage which the old roman kings regularly contracted with a goddess of vegetation and water for the purpose of enabling him to discharge his divine or magical functions in such a rite the part of the goddess might be played either by an image or a woman and if by a woman probably by the queen if there is any truth in this conjecture we may suppose that the king and queen of rome masqueraded as god and goddess at their marriage exactly as the king and queen of egypt appear to have done the legend of numa and Egeria points to a sacred grove rather to a house as a scene of the nuptial union which like the marriage of the king and queen of may or the vine god and the queen of athens may have been annually celebrated as a charm to ensure the fertility not only of the earth but of man and beast now according to some accounts the scene of the marriage was no other than the sacred grove of nemai and on quite independent grounds we have been led to suppose that in that same grove the king of the wood was wedded to diana the convergence of the two distinct lines of inquiry suggests that the legendary union of the roman king with Egeria may have been a reflection or duplicate of the union of the king of the wood with Egeria or double diana this does not imply that the roman kings ever served as kings of the wood in the arician grove but only that they may originally have been invested with a sacred character of the same general kind and may have held office on similar terms to be more explicit it is possible that they reigned not by right of birth but by virtue of their supposed divinity as representatives or embodiments of a god and that as such they made it with a goddess and had to prove their fitness from time to time to discharge the divine functions by engaging in a severe bodily struggle which may often have proved fatal to them leaving the crown to their victorious adversary our knowledge of the roman kingship is far too scanty to allow us to affirm any one of these propositions with confidence but at least there are some scattered hints or indications of a similarity in all these respects between the priests of nemai and the kings of rome or perhaps rather between their remote predecessors in the dark ages which preceded the dawn of legend part two the king as jupiter the roman king seems to have personated jupiter and what is costume in the first place then it would seem that the roman king personated no less a deity than jupiter himself for down to imperial times victorious generals celebrating a triumph and magistrates presiding at the games in their circus wore the costume of jupiter which was borrowed for the occasion from his great temple on the capitol and it has been held with a high degree of probability both by ancients and moderns that in doing so they copied the traditionary attire and insignia of the roman kings 
they rode a chariot drawn by four laurel-crowned horses through the city where every one else went on foot they wore purple robes embroidered or spangled with gold in the right hand they bore a branch of laurel and the left hand an ivory sceptre topped with an eagle a wreath of laurel crowned their brows their face was reddened with vermilion and over their head a slave held a heavy crown of massy gold fashioned in the likeness of oak leaves in this attire the assimilation of the man and the god comes out above all in the eagle-topped sceptre the oaken crown and the reddened face for the eagle was the bird of jove the oak was his sacred tree and the face of his image standing in his four-horse chariot on the capitol was in like manner regularly dyed red on festivals indeed so important it was deemed to keep the divine features properly rouged that one of the first duties of the censors was to contract for having this done the greeks sometimes painted red the face or the whole body of the wine-god dionysus these customs may have been a substitute for an older practice of feeding a god by smearing the face and especially the lips of his idol with the blood of a sacrificial victim many examples of such a practice might be adduced from the religion of barbarous peoples the oak crown as an emblem of jupiter and of the roman emperors as a triumphal procession always ended in the temple of jupiter on the capitol it was peculiarly appropriate that the head of the victor should be graced by a crown of oak leaves for not only was every oak consecrated to jupiter but the capitoline temple of the god was said to have been built by romulus beside a sacred oak venerated by shepherds to which the king attached the spoils won by him from the enemy's general in battle we are expressly told that the oak crown was sacred to capitoline jupiter a pastor of ovid proves that it was regarded as the god's special emblem writing in exile on the shores of the black sea the poet sends the book which he has just composed to rome to be published there he personifies a volume and imagines it passing along the sacred way up to the door of the emperor's stately palace on the palatine hill above the portal hung shining arms and a crown of oak leaves at the sight the poet starts is this quoth i the house of jove for sure to my prophetic soul the oaken crown was reason good to think so the senate had granted augustus the right to have the wreath of oak always suspended over his door and elsewhere over counts this among the more than mortal honours bestowed on the emperor on the capital at certa there stood a silver image of jupiter wearing a silver crown of oak leaves and acorns similarly at Udona, the most famous sanctuary of the oak in greece the image of zeus appears to have worn a chaplet of oak leaves for the god is constantly thus betrayed on coins of epirus and just as roman kings appear to have personated the oak god jupiter so greek kings appear to have personated the oak god zeus the legendary salmonius of Elis is certainly reported to have done so periphas the ancient king of athens is said to have been styled zeus by his people and have been changed into an eagle by his jealous namesake in homer kings are often spoken of as nurtured by zeus and divine indeed we are told in ancient days every greek king was called zeus to the romans the breach between the human and the divine was not so wide as it seems to us thus we may fairly assume that on certain solemn occasions roman generals and magistrates personated the supreme god and that in doing so they revived the practice of the early kings to us moderns for whom the breach which divides the human and the divine has deepened into the impassable gulf 
such mimicry may appear impious but it was otherwise with the ancients to their thinking gods and men were akin for many families traced their descent from a divinity and the deification of a man probably seemed as little extraordinary to them as the canonization of a saint seems to a modern catholic roman custom of representing dead ancestors by masked men the romans in particular were quite familiar with the spectacle of men masquerading as spirits for at the funerals of great houses all the illustrious dead of the family were personated by men specially chosen for their resemblance to the departed these representatives wore masks fashioned and painted in the likeness of the originals they were dressed in rich robes of office resplendent with purple and gold such as the dead nobles had worn in their lifetime like them they rode in chariots through the city preceded by the rods and axes and attended by all the pomp and heraldry of high station and when at last the funeral procession after threading its way through the crowded streets defiled into the forum the maskers solemnly took their seats in ivory chairs placed for them on the platform of the rostra in the sight of the people recalling no doubt to the old by their silent presence the memories of an illustrious past and firing the young with the ambition of a glorious future the kings of alba seem also to have claimed to represent jupiter according to a tradition which we have no reason to reject rome was founded by settlers from alba longa a city situated on the slope of the alban hills overlooking the lake and the campagna hence the roman kings claimed to be representatives or embodiments of jupiter god of the sky of the thunder and of the oak it is natural to suppose that the kings of alba from whom the founder of rome traced its descent may have set up the same clan before them the sylvi and the julii now the alban dynasty bore the name of sylvi or wood and it can hardly be without significance that in the vision of the historic glories of rome revealed to aeneas in the underworld virgil an antiquary as well as a poet should represent all the line of sylvi as crowned with oak a chaplet of oak leaves would thus seem to have been part of the insignia of the old kings of alba longa as of their successors the kings of rome in both cases it marked the monarch as the human representative of the oak god with regard to silvus the first king of the alban dynasty we are told that he got his name because he had been born or brought up in the forest and that when he came to man's estate he contested the kingdom with his kinsman julius whose name as soon as the ancients themselves perceived means the little jupiter julius the little jupiter the people decided in favour of Silvius, but his rival Julius was consoled for the loss of the crown by being invested with religious authority and the office of chief pontiff, or perhaps rather of Flamandialis, the highest dignity after the kinship. From this Julius, or little Jupiter, the noble house of the Julii, and hence the first emperors of Rome, believed themselves to be sprung. The legend of the dispute between Silvius and Julius may preserve our reminiscence of such a partition of spiritual and temporal powers in alba longa house afterwards took place in rome when the old regal office was divided between the consuls and the king of the sacred rites many more instances of such a schism will meet us later on that the julian house worshipped vigilvis the little jupiter according to the ancient rites of alba longa is proved by the inscription on an altar which they dedicated to him at their ancestral home of bovale a colony of alba longa situated at the foot of the alban hills the caesars the most illustrious family of the julian house took their name from their long hair 
Césarise, which was probably in those early days, as it was among the Franks long afterwards, a symbol of royalty. The Alban kings seem to have been expected to make thunder and rain for the good of their subjects. But in ceding the pontificate to their rivals, it would seem that the reigning dynasty of the Sylvie or Woods by no means renounced their own claim to impersonate the god of the oak and the thunder. For the Roman annals record that one of them, Romulus, Remulus, or Amulius Silvius by name, set up for being a god in his own person, the equal or superior of Jupiter. To support his pretensions and overawe his subjects, he constructed machines whereby he mimicked the clap of thunder and the flash of lightning. Diodorus relates that in the season of fruitage, when thunder is loud and frequent, the king commands his soldiers to drown the roar of heaven's artillery by clashing their swords against their shields. But he paid the penalty for his impurity, for he perished, he and his house, struck by a thunderbolt in the midst of a dreadful storm. Swollen by the rain, the Alban lake rose in flood and drowned his palace. But still, says an ancient historian, when the water is low and the surface unruffled by a breeze, you may see the ruins of the palace at the bottom of the clear lake. Taken along with the similar story of Salmonius, king of Elis, this legend points to a real custom observed by the early kings of Greece and Italy, who, like their fellows in Africa, down to modern times, may have been expected to produce rain and thunder for the good of the crops. The priestly king Numa passed for an adept in the art of drawing down lightning from the sky. Mock thunder, we know, has been made by various peoples as a rain charm in modern times. Why should it not be made by kings in antiquity? The legends of the deaths of Roman kings point to a close connection between the king and the thunder god. In this connection, it deserves to be noted that, according to the legend, Salmonius, like his Alban counterpart, was killed by a thunderbolt, and that one of the Roman kings, Talus Hostilius, is reported to have met with the same end in an attempt to draw down Jupiter in the form of lightning from the sky. Aeneas himself, the legendary ancestor of both the Alban and the Roman kings, vanished from the world in a violent thunderstorm, and was afterwards worshipped as Jupiter Indiges. A mound of earth encircled with fine trees on the bank of the little river Numisius was pointed out as his grave. Death and Deification of Romulus Romulus too, the first king of Rome, disappeared in like manner. It was the 7th of July, and the king was reviewing his army at the Goat's Marsh, outside the walls of the city. Suddenly the sky lowered and a tempest burst, accompanied by peals of thunder. Soon the storm had swept by, leaving the brightness and serenity of the summer day behind. But Romulus was never seen again. Those who had stood by him said they saw him caught up to heaven in a whirlwind, and not long afterwards a certain Proculus Julius, a patrician of Alban birth and descent, declared an oath that Romulus had appeared to him clad in bright armour, and announced that the Romans were to worship him as god under the name of Quirinus, and to build him a temple on the spot. The temple was built, and the place was henceforth known as the Quirinal Hill. In this legend it is significant that the enunciation of the king's divinity should be put in the mouth of a member of the Julian house, a native of Alba, for we have seen reason to believe that at Alba the Juli had competed with the Sylvie, from whom Romulus was descended for the kingship and with the honour of personating Jupiter, if, as seems to be philologically possible, the word Quirinus is derived from the same root as Quirinus, an oak.
the name of the deified romulus would mean no more than the oak god that is jupiter thus the tradition would square perfectly with the other indications of custom and legend which have led us to conclude that the kings both of rome and of alba claim to embody in their own persons the god of the sky of thunder and of the oak certainly the stories which associated the deaths of so many of them with thunderstorms point to a close connection with the god of thunder and lightning a king who had been wont to fulminate in his lifetime might naturally be supposed a death to be carried up in a thunderstorm to heaven there to discharge above the clouds the same duties which he had performed on earth such a tale would be all the more likely to attach itself to the twin romulus if the early romans shared the widespread superstition that twins have power over the weather in general and over rain and wind in particular the tempests are caused by the spirits of the dead is a belief of the araucanians of chile not storm bursts upon the andes or the ocean which the andes do not ascribe to a battle between the souls of their fellow-countrymen and the dead spaniards in the roaring of the wind they hear the trampling of their ghostly horses in the peal of the thunder the roll of the drums and the flash of lightning the fire of the artillery every lad in the town probably had its local jupiter thus if the kings of alba and rome imitated jupiter as god of the oak by wearing a crown of oak leaves they seem also to have copied him in his character of a weather god by pretending to make thunder and lightning and if they did so it is probable that like jupiter in heaven and many kings on earth they also acted as public rain-makers ringing showers from the dark sky by their enchantments whenever the parched cried out for the refreshing moisture at rome the sluices of heaven were opened by means of a sacred stone and the ceremony appears to have formed part of the ritual of jupiter lysius the god who elicits from the clouds the flashing lightning and the dripping rain and who is so well fitted to perform the ceremony as the king and living representative of the sky god many local jupiters in latinum the conclusion which we have reached as to the kings of rome and alba probably holds good of all the kings of ancient latinum each of them we may suppose represented or embodied the local jupiter for we can hardly doubt that of old every latin town or settlement had its own jupiter as every town and almost every church in modern italy has its own madonna and like the bowl of the semites the local jupiter was commonly worshipped on high places wooded heights round which the rain clouds gather were indeed the natural sanctuaries for a god of the sky the rain and the oak capitoline jupiter and juno at rome he occupied one summit of the capitoline hill while the other summit was assigned to his wife juno whose temple with a long flight of stairs leading up to it has for ages been appropriately replaced by the church of saint mary in the altar of the sky in Aracili the hills of rome were once wooded with oaks that both heights were originally wooded seems certain for down to imperial times the saddle which joins them was known as the place between the two groves virgil tells us that the hilltop where gilded temples glittered in his day had been covered of old by shaggy thickets the haunt of woodland elves and savage men born of the tree trunks in the heart of oak these thickets were probably composed of oaks for the oak crown was sacred to capitoline juno as well as to jupiter it was to a sacred oak on the capitoline that romulus fastened the spoils and there is evidence that in early times oak woods clothed other of the hills on which rome was afterwards built oak woods on the roman hills in antiquity 
thus the Curlian hill went originally by the name of the mountain of the oak grove on account of the thicket of oak by which it was overgrown and jupiter was here worshipped in his character of the oak god one of the old gates of rome apparently between the Curlian and the aquiline hills was called the gate of the oak grove for a similar reason and within the walls hard by was a chapel of the oak grove dedicated to the worship of the oak nymphs these nymphs appear on coins of the Herculean family as three women supporting on their shoulders a pole from which rise leafy branches the esquiline hill seems also to have derived its name from the its oaks after mentioning the chapel of the oak and other hollow groves which still dotted the hill in his time the antiquary varro tells us that their bounds were now much curtailed adding with a sigh that it was no wonder the sacred old trees should give way to the modern worship of mammon apparently the roman nobles of those days sold the ancient woods and their descendants sell their beautiful gardens for building land to this list of oak-clad hills on the left bank of the tiber must be added the quirinal if quirinus who had a very ancient shrine on the hill was the oak god under the aventine was a grove of evergreen oaks which appears to have been no other than the grove of vigiria outside the porta capina the sacred vestal fire fed with oak wood the old grove of vesta which once skirted the foot of the palatine hill on the side of the forum must surely have been a grove of oaks for not only does an oak appear growing beside the temple of vesta on a fine relief preserved in the gallery of the fuzizi at florence but charred embers of the sacred vestal fire have in recent years been discovered at the temple of vesta in the forum and a microscopic analysis of them has proved that they consist of the pith of heart of trunks or great branches of oak Quercus. the full significance of this discovery will appear later on when the plebeians seceded to the janiculum in the third century before christ the dictator q hortensius summoned a meeting of the people and passed a law in an oak grove which perhaps grew on the hill in this neighbourhood there was a street called the street of the oak grove it is mentioned in an inscription found in its original position near the modern garibaldi bridge on the vatican hill there stood an evergreen oak which was believed to be older than rome an inscription in etruscan letters on a bronze tablet proclaimed the sanctity of the tree finally that oak woods existed at or near rome in the earliest times has lately been demonstrated by the discovery in the forum itself of a prehistoric cemetery which contains amongst other sepultures of bones of several young children deposited in rudely hollowed trunks of oak with all this evidence before us we need not wonder that virgil should speak of the primitive inhabitants of rome as born of the tree trunks and the heart of oak and that roman kings should have worn crowns of oak leaves in imitation of the oak god jupiter who dwelt in his sacred grove on the capital the alban kings may have imitated letian jupiter who dwelt on the top of the alban mount if the kings of rome aped capitoline jove their predecessors the kings of alba probably laid themselves out to mimic the great latian jupiter who had his seat above the city on the summit of the alban mountain Latinus, a legendary ancestor of the dynasty, was said to have been changed into Latian Jupiter after vanishing from the world in the mysterious fashion characteristic of the old Latin kings. The sanctuary of the god on top of the mountain was a religious centre of the Latin League. Azaba was its political capital till Rome wrested the supremacy from its ancient rival. Apparently no temple, in our sense of the word, was ever erected to Jupiter on this his holy mountain 
as god of the sky and thunder he appropriately received the homage of his worshippers in the open air the massive wall of which some remains still enclose the old garden or the passionist monastery seems to have been part of the sacred precinct which tarquin the proud the last king of rome marked out for the solemn annual assembly of the latin league the girl's oldest sanctuary on this airy mountain top was a grove and bearing in mind not merely the special consecration of the oak of jupiter but also the traditional oak crown of the alban kings and the allergy of the capitoline jupiter at rome we may suppose that the trees in the grove were oaks the woods of latinum in antiquity we know that in antiquity mount algidis an outlying group of the alban hills was covered with dark forests of oak and among the tribes who belonged to the latin league in the earliest days and were entitled to share the flesh of the white bulls sacrificed on the alban mount there was one whose members styled themselves the men of the oak doubtless on account of the woods among which they dwelt the Erastus's description of the woods of latinum but we should err if we picture to ourselves a country as covered in historical times with an unbroken forest of oaks theophrastus has left us a description of the woods of latium as they were in the fourth century before christ he says the land of the latins is all moist the plains produced laurels myrtles and wonderful beeches for they fell trees of such a size that a single stem suffices for the keel of a tyrrhenian ship pines and firs grow in the mountains what they call the land of Circe is a lofty headland thickly wooded with oak myrtle and luxuriant laurels the natives say that Circe dwelt there and they show the grave of elpenor from which grow myrtles such as wreaths are made of whereas the other myrtle trees are tall the prospect from the alban mountain antiquity thus a prospect from the top of the alban mount in the early days of rome must have been very different in some respects from what it is today. the purple apennines indeed in their internal calm on the one hand and the shining mediterranean in its eternal unrest on the other no doubt looked then much as they look now whether bathed in sunshine or checkered by the fleeting shadows of clouds but instead of the desolate barren expanse of the fever-stricken campagna spanned by its long lines of ruined aqueducts like the broken arches of the bridge in the vision of mirza the eye must have ranged over woodlands that stretched away mile after mile on all sides to the varied hues of green or autumnal scarlet and gold melted insensibly into the blue of the distant mountains and sea thus the alban mount was to the latins what olympus was to the greeks the lofty abode of the sky god who hurled his thunderbolts from above the clouds resemblance between the latin worship of jupiter and the drusidial worship of the oak the white steers which were here sacrificed to him in his sacred grove as in the capital of rome remind us of the white bulls which the druids of Gaul sacrificed to the holy oak when they cut the mistletoe and the parallel would be all the closer if as we have seen reason to think the latins worshipped jupiter originally in groves of oak other resemblances between ancient Gaul and latinum will meet us later on when we remember that the ancient italian and celtic peoples spoke languages which are nearly related to each other we shall not be surprised at discovering traces of community in their religion especially in what concerns the worship of the god of the oak and the thunder 
and that worship as we shall see presently belongs to the oldest stratum of aryan civilization in europe sacred marriage of jupiter and juno but jupiter did not reign alone on the top of his holy mountain he had his consort with him the goddess juno who is worshipped here under the same title moneta as on the capital of rome as the oak crown was sacred to jupiter and juno on the capital so we may suppose it was the arbor mount from which the capitoline worship was derived thus the oak god would have his oak goddess in the sacred oak grove so at dodona the oak god zeus was coupled with dion whose very name is only a dialectically different form of juno and so on the top of mount Citheron, he was periodically wedded to an oaken image of hera it is probable though it cannot be positively proved that the sacred marriage of jupiter and juno was only celebrated by all the peoples of the latin stock in the month which they named after the goddess the midsummer month of june janus and Karna. now on the first of june the roman pontiffs performed certain rites in the grove of hellernus beside the tiber and on the same day and perhaps in the same place a nymph for the grove by name Karna, received offerings of lard and bean porridge she was said to be a huntress chaste and coy who gave the slip to her lovers in the depth of the wood but was caught by janus some took her to be diana herself if she were indeed a form of that goddess her union with janus that is dianus would be inappropriate and as she had a chapel on the caelian hill which was once covered with oak woods she may have been like egeria an oak nymph further janus a dianus and diana as we shall see later on were originally more doubles of jupiter and juno with whom they coincide in name and to some extent in function hence it appears to be not impossible that the rites celebrated by the pontiffs on the first of june in the sacred grove of Alernus was a marriage of jupiter and juno under the form of janus and diana ancient use of whitethorn or buckthorn to ward off witchcraft it would be some confirmation of this view if we could be sure that as ovid seems to imply the romans were in the habit of placing branches of whitethorn or buckthorn in their windows on the first of june to keep out the witches for in some parts of europe precisely the same custom is observed for the same reason a month earlier on the marriage day of the king and queen of mary the greeks certainly believed that branches of white thorn or buckthorn fastened to a door were outside the house of power to disarm the malignant arts of sorcerers and to exclude spirits hence they hung up branches of it before the door when sacrifices were being offered to the dead lest any of the prowling ghosts should be tempted to revisit their old homes or to invade those of other people when the atheist Bion lay a dying, he not only caused sacrifice to be offered on his behalf to the gods whose existence he had denied, but got an old hag to mumble incantations over him and to bind magical thongs about his arms. And he had boughs of buckthorn and laurel attached to the lintel to keep out death. However, the evidence as to the rites observed by the Romans on the first of June is too slight and dubious to allow us to press the parallel with May Day at the sacred marriage of jupiter and juno in later times the parts of deities may have been acted by the flamandalis and the flaminica if at any time of the year the romans celebrated the sacred marriage of jupiter and juno as the greeks commonly celebrated the corresponding marriage of zeus and hera we may suppose that under the republic 
the ceremony was either performed over images of the divine pair erected by the flamen Dialis and his wife the flamenica before the flamen Dialis was a priest of jove indeed ancient and modern writers have regarded him with much probability as the living image of jupiter a human embodiment of the sky god in earlier times the roman king as representative of jupiter would naturally play the part of the heavenly bridegroom at the sacred marriage while his queen would figure as a heavenly bride just as in egypt the king and queen masqueraded in the character of deities and as at athens the queen annually wedded the vine god dionysus that the roman king and queen should act the parts of jupiter and juno would seem all the more natural because these deities themselves bore the title of king and queen even if the office of flamen Dialis existed under the kings as it appears to have done the double representation of jupiter by the king and the flamen need not have seemed extraordinary to the romans of the time the flamen and the flamenica may have been the deputies of the king and queen the same sort of duplication as we saw appears to have taken place at alba where the Julii were allowed to represent the supreme god in the character of little jupiters while the royal dynasty of the Silvi continued to weld the divine thunder and lightning and long ages afterwards history repeated itself another member of the julian house the first emperor of rome was deified in his lifetime under the title of jupiter while a flamen was appointed to do for him what the flamen Dialis did for the heavenly jove it is said that numa the typical priestly king at first himself discharged the functions of flamen Dialis, but afterwards appointed a separate priest of jupiter with that title in order that the kings untrammelled by the burdensome religious observances attached to the priesthood might be free to lead their armies to battle the tradition may be substantially correct for analogy shows that the functions of a priestly king are too harassing and too incongruous to be permanently united in the same hands and that sooner or later the holder of the office seeks to rid himself of part of his burden by deputing to others according to his temper and tastes either his civil or his religious duties hence we may take it as probable that the fighting kings of rome tired of parading as jupiter and of observing all the elaborate ritual all the tedious restrictions which the character of godhead entailed on them were glad to relegate these pious mummeries to a substitute in whose hands they left the crozier at home while they went forth to wield the sharp roman sword abroad this would explain why the traditions of the latter kings from tullus Hostilius onwards exhibited so few traces of sacred or priestly functions adhering to their office among the ceremonies which they henceforth performed by deputy may have been the rite of the sacred marriage at the sacred marriage the king and queen of rome probably personated the god and goddess of the oak whether that was so or not the legend of numa and Egeria appears to embody a reminiscence of a time when the priestly king himself played the part of the divine bridegroom and as we have seen reason to suppose that the roman kings personated the oak god while Egeria is expressly said to have been an oak nymph the story of their union in the sacred grove raises a presumption that at rome in the regal period a ceremony was periodically performed exactly analogous to that which was annually celebrated at athens down to the time of aristotle the marriage of the king of rome to the oak goddess like the wedding of the vine god to the queen of athens must have been intended to quicken the growth of vegetation by homeopathic magic of the two forms of the rite we can hardly doubt that the roman was the older 
and that long before the northern invaders met with the vine on the shores of the Mediterranean, their forefathers had married the tree god to the tree goddess in the vast oak forests of central and northern Europe. In the England of our day, the forests have mostly disappeared. It is still on many a village green and in many a country lane a faded image of the sacred marriage lingers in the rustic pageantry of May Day. End of section 9「This is your invitation to a masterclass in engineering and design. Your ticket to go from zero to 60 with the Lexus Performance Line. A feeling this dynamic is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the exhilaration of the Lexus Performance Line and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the Fileo fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.